talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dinah Weeks and Dave Woodard. Upright and retaining fluence, although a little foggy with a jet lag, the Scotty Dog is back in the air chair. He's hoping he can string together a sentence and speak after 18 total days away. Here's Scott Thompson! Good afternoon. It is 900 CHML, Scott Thompson, and I hope you've had a great time with me away and enjoyed the break. Uh, I'm a little groggy. Uh, where I was coming from, it's about uh, 9 or 10 o'clock at night, and I'm a little hoarse. Uh, but other than that, uh, it is great to be back, and tons going on today, just tons going on, including the announcement uh, that Andrew Horvath is uh, going to be running for mayor of Hamilton uh, coming up in the next municipal election. Incredibly uh, moving stories as well coming out of Edmonton. Edmonton, Alberta, and uh, the papal visit to uh, Canada in regard to truth and reconciliation and our indigenous community. And man, I, I feel like we've taken a, uh, a giant step forward here, although uh, it is only uh, the first steps. And after spending uh, a few, a couple of weeks in um, uh, Italy and in Greece and touring uh, many, many churches and uh, seeing what this does to people and how it moves people and how it makes us look back and appreciate our history whether we are religious or not and you know I'm certainly not a religious person in any way but it's impossible not to be moved when you go into situations like this and then coming home and seeing what I've seen with the Pope visiting uh, indigenous uh, communities and such and specifically him uh, wearing a headdress donning a headdress uh, of uh, from the indigenous community uh, it, it must be and it is an incredibly spiritual day for uh, not only all Canadians, but certainly those uh, in the Indigenous community. So we've got a jam-packed show. We'll try to fit it all in. And, uh, of course, always looking for your comments at 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Poll question of the day. Do you think uh, Andrea Horbath will become Hamilton's first female mayor? And we're going to throw that out there. Uh, and we'll take calls all day on this at 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Your thoughts about Andrea Horbath running for mayor, we would love to hear from you. Uh, I want to play you a couple of, oh, I should also say, sorry, I'm a little out of uh, sorts here. I'm forgetting what I'm doing. Uh, also remind you that uh, Hammerhead Trivia comes back today and uh, will happen in the 5 o'clock hour, just after the 5 o'clock news. We've got your Thai Cats tickets and tickets to the Brat Music Festival all waiting for you just after the 5 o'clock news uh, in Hammerhead Trivia. All right, uh, I want to play you a couple of clips here. Andrea Horvath, of course, announcing she will run for mayor for the city of Hamilton, the former NDP leader, uh, making that announcement earlier on today. Here's uh, what she said in regard to uh, why running for mayor and her experience in I'm the chair. I'm confident that I have a lot of experience, uh, a, a lot of networks and connections, uh, a, a great record of hard work uh, and of, of deep love um, for this community. I've worked for the people of Hamilton for literally my entire life uh, and done so with, with, with passion and with pride. And on the voters uh, on this announcement and how she figures they may feel on this. They know that, um, uh, that this race is, uh, is changing today. Uh, they know that uh, there's an opportunity to really um, look forward, not always backwards, but look forward on what the opportunities are that this city has in front of it. And that's certainly uh, where my focus is going to be.
and on leading the city as opposed to the province. Of course, uh, former leader of uh, the provincial NDP party and uh, a loss in the last election, but on looking forward. The way that you lead effectively is by pulling people in, by listening to what people have to say, by, uh, by, by developing, um, you know, whether it's platform or whether it's policy, uh, with, with, a, with an openness. And that's something that I think that people in the city are, uh, are looking for. All right, so we'll be talking about that all day today because obviously that is a big uh, is a big story, and we'll be looking for your comments. Send us a note, Scott Thompson, uh, at nine hundred chfl dot com. We would love to hear from you on that. And uh, phone lines always open nine zero five six four five three two two one star nine nine hundred on your cell. Uh, other big story today, as I mentioned uh, earlier today. Uh, a uh, huge mass being held in Edmonton, 65,000 people or so in attendance, and uh, incredible to see the Pope rolling in uh, to the stadium, uh, to the chants and songs from the Indigenous community, and uh, a very, very, very moving experience. Uh, and and I honestly think we've taken a giant step forward uh, in this. And as Canada being a very young country, and be fortunate and fortunate enough to uh, tour Rome and Italy and parts of the ancient world uh you can see what a uh, uh a a young person canada is in the world of 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 history in the world of of uh, uh, how we all started, how we all got here. And it's fascinating to look at places through Europe which have a lot more history than we do. And we've tried to erase a big part of our history in the past. Um, that's that, that's the way it was. And we have to concentrate on moving forward. Here's a clip from uh, Aaron Chalmers from uh, Global News in Edmonton on the Pope's visit. There were a number of very emotional moments yesterday. A woman sang Cree, uh, was not part of the program, all of a sudden began singing O Canada in Cree. Very emotional for her and others that were there. Um, moccasins were also presented. Uh, they were given to the Pope back when in Rome in April. The Pope then returned them uh, this morning to say that he understands the Catholic Church's role and he wanted to return these moccasins of a child to say that he understands and he begs for the apology. Um, um, so it was it was full of mixed emotions. And I think, again, this is just the beginning of the healing process. All right. There you have it. So uh, a big day today. Lots going on both uh, locally uh, as well in, in the country and therefore uh, internationally. So uh, we'll try to cover all of that today. And of course, uh, get your input at 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Always send us a note at Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. All right. Hamilton Fringe Festival is on. In other news, as Hamilton enjoys the summer of 2022, we'll talk about that coming up. The summer of 2022. 22 in full swing in the hammer and there is tons of stuff going on that uh, we haven't seen in a while and some new takes on old things and so just some great new adventures uh, that people have come up with uh, after being uh you know, uh, whatever that was for the last two and a half years. And the Hamilton Fringe Festival is a part of that. They've got uh, a series of new uh, shows coming up that you can see uh, in pubs, basically, which is a cool way, uh, uh, a different way of seeing these sorts of production. And Hamilton's own Eliza Jane Scott from uh, Come From Away wrote and stars in one of these shows. We'll talk more about all of this. She is with us now, uh, Eliza Jane Scott. Thanks for taking the time. Hope you're doing well. I'm great, Scott. So tell us about what is going on and, and, and what the Hamilton Fringe Festival is, is expanding and doing now. 
So they've decided this year to run something called the mini bar series, which is theater in a bar, which I think is a great idea because it allows people who don't really like going to the quote unquote normal kind of colonial type theater to come into a different space to see theater. And these shows in the mini bar fringe are 20 minutes long. So it's like a tapas of good theater. You get a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And you can buy a pass for the fringe for the mini bar series. And it's just a great way as a performer to try to work out some material. It's almost like going in and working on your standup in, in a sense. So it's a really great way to see theater without, a, you know, like a huge four-hour sound of music commitment <laughs> this is a great idea uh tell us what the experience would be like for someone who walks into the street off the street what can they expect to see in here fantastic so the venue that we're performing at is called the casbah lounge and that's a nice beautiful little sweet bar it's about it's got about 30 seats and um you're in for an intimate night of theater. Uh, the performers are really connected to the audience because we're so close to them. There's no lighting or set design to sort of um, get in the way because it's a really simple environment. But I've written my play as a comedy with music because uh, we all need a laugh these days. <laughs> and I wanted to see if I could. So basically, if you came to see my show, you're going to laugh. Um, that's what I wanted to do. It's set in a court of law. So the bar venue works perfectly. Uh, no pun intended. Um, and it's a great opportunity because I get to sort of play with the audience and improv with them, although it's a, a totally scripted show. So uh, this is totally outside the box uh, thinking. I just uh, came back from Europe and, and there's all kinds of things like this going on in a sense that they're thinking outside the box. Where did this come from and how much did, say, being locked up for two years uh, play into all of this? Yeah, if you mean like me creating this show personally, I just needed to see if I could write some comedy because I'm a big comedy fan. I grew up in a really hilarious family with like five, six, five brothers and two sisters. So there was always someone doing something ridiculous. Um, and I needed to strike it on my own. Um, the, the success of Come From Away was awesome. And I wanted to see what I could do. So uh, it's kind of a testing ground for me as a writer because I'm developing this show. And it's been really nice. I've had some people come and, and want to like uh, lend a hand in the development and make it a longer show and turn it into a bigger show. Um, so having this opportunity to do this at the Fringe is, is a great thing because there's not a lot of pressure involved you don't have to be incredible super fantastic the show is perfect you can develop it and work it which is really important for us as artists to be able to try things out with the audience like i said it's like a stand-up trying out their their comedy set um every night just to keep working on the material to get it as good as it can possibly be you talked about the typical production and what we see when we go into a theater and see a play and various acts and such what's it like to write uh, a smaller version of this, a 20-minute version, or, as you were saying, is this a good way to start into that? Start smaller and then add to it as needed. Well, the funny thing about writing something so short is it's got to be good. Like, you really get to see how comedy structure plays a part. And you can't just... It has to be really good and really tight. So it actually helps you become a, a better writer and performer when it's this um, short, because you have to have a beginning, middle and end. It has to be clear and the jokes have to be nonstop. Essentially, I say to people, it's my show is kind of a combination between Law and Order, Glee and Parks and Rec. <laughs> so the <laughs> laughs come fast and hard. And um, and uh, it's a great way to spend a short night in the theater. Plus, you get to drink all you would like to have to drink, which is even better. Uh, so uh, other productions, uh, this is not the only one. Hamilton Fringe Festival is doing a, a series of these. Um, is this a, a new addition for them? Do you see more of this happening, this type of theater happening? 
I think that's a great question, Scott. And yes, I think I think all companies, maybe worldwide and fringes, of course, are trying to find different ways to get different people in their theaters for different lengths of times at different times of the day. Uh, theater can be anywhere with anyone. And having a, a venue like the Casbah allows us to have the audience be part of the show. And that makes people feel really special. It makes them feel like they're not going to some stuffy old show where they have to sit there and be quiet. They can actually participate in, in the energy of the evening and help tell the story, which is pretty great. So yes, I think the Fringe Festival will move forward with this as a constant in the years to come. They also have bring your own venue uh, options for people who are performing their shows in stairwells and on street corners and parks, because why not, right? Why not? Especially now after COVID, people are a little anxious about being inside. So why don't we switch it up and see who we can get, uh, get, get in the theater because it's a great place to be. All right, so give us the details on your show, how we can see it, when we can see it, etc. Yeah, fantastic. So my shows run uh, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday this week um, at 7.15, 8 o'clock, and 8.45, respectively. Uh, they're $12 with a $5 fringe backer button that you're required to buy. And... Um, it's going to be a laugh riot. I have a special guest, Hamilton celebrity, every night who plays the judge in my courtroom comedy. So it's a different person from communities around Hamilton that will join me on stage. And they are what make the show extraordinary because they bring their friends and they bring their friends and they have a great time as well. So check it out at the Hamilton Fringe. We are the Hamilton Mini Bar. All right, Hamilton Fringe Festival is on right till the end of the month. A new mini bar series, a series of 20 minute shows that can be caught uh, this weekend with Elijah Jane Scott uh, in the current one. Elijah's a uh, great idea. My goodness, I hope it's successful for you. Good luck. Thank you so much. Have a great day, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. She hasn't asked me to, uh, to make an endorsement, but uh, if she does, I will. Uh... Certainly consider that. I, I, I certainly intend to, uh, at some point, endorse a candidate. And uh, certainly it's high time we had a female uh, mayor and, uh, and certainly have one, have one that has the depth and, and wealth of experience that Henry has uh, certainly bodes well. Current mayor and not running for re-election, uh, Fred Eisenberger on his thoughts on Andrea Horvath announcing this morning she will run for mayor in the municipal election, uh, will be on the ballot a month and a half after the party she led for 13 years, uh, did not unseat the Doug Ford Conservatives in June. Uh, the Hamilton Center MPP will be giving up her provincial role for a chance to become mayor on October 24th. Let's bring in former mayor of Hamilton, Larry Deani, get his thoughts on all of this. Larry, thanks for the time. I hope you well i am well scott and nice to hear from you also uh, i just returned home from a great vacation which included some time in greece and uh, your fabulous uh, fabulous country of uh, italy spending time in the puglia region and then ending off in rome and everyone there says hi <laughs> uh, well i'm so pleased to hear that and uh, i was uh, in your ancestors bailiwick uh, not too long ago uh, in the UK, and everybody there didn't know who you were. <laughs> Touche, my friend. All right, your thoughts on the announcement this morning. <laughs> um, well, so it was the worst kept secret uh, in, in Hamilton that Andrea uh, would be running for mayor, and uh, I am pleased uh, that she is as well. Uh, if only because uh, it rounds out the field now. We have uh, three credible candidates. Um, and I think uh, because of, um, uh, you know, some of the comments that Fred made 
um, uh, she probably is the contender right now to beat. So uh, a lot of people are making hay about her being perhaps could be the first female mayor of Hamilton. Your thoughts on this angle? You know, I've been having that uh, feeling for uh, a couple of elections now that if a credible female candidate were to present herself, um, she would have a very good chance. Um, you know, it's always nice to to be leading uh, cutting edge uh and, um, you know, creating a little bit of history as well. Uh, and so that's not, of course, the only reason uh, that people will vote for her. But it's one of the reasons I think that would, uh, people of all stripes, political and otherwise, will find Andrea a very um, a credible candidate to be considered for that position. Many have mixed reactions on how well she did as a provincial leader of the NDP. Uh, obviously, in the last election, um, not faring well against Doug Ford and such. Does that help? Does that hinder? Uh, how, how do we how do we square this? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, it's a factor. Uh, the fact that she led, uh, you know, the NDP uh, party for the last 13 years is part of the calculation that people will make in, in assessing her. And those who are die-hard um, opponents of that party may be, may be influenced by that. Uh, you know, I am not a supporter of that party, but I, I you know, wipe that away um, because the mayor's job, quite frankly, uh, as Andrea herself said in the, or the comments she made yesterday, is to bring people together, is to, is to create opportunities uh, for the municipality, regardless of political stripe. Uh, and do the practical, positive thing for the community. Uh, so having been in that job uh, and having worked uh, and intending to work with, uh, when I was in, in it, uh, with any party at the other levels of government that might present themselves, I know that the focus is on Hamilton and doing Hamilton work, uh, and it's not a partisan uh, forum unlike the one she leaves at Queen's Park, where there are political stripes. Um, of course, there, you know, people have political tendencies even on our council, uh, but they're all part of the government. And so they all work together with other levels of government to enhance the city. And I think we've seen mayors do that. You know, people, you know, she was asked what I think is, is not a, a, a very good question uh, by um, a, a very experienced journalist that I really like, uh, Steve Bacon, uh, who asked her, you know, uh, how are you going to, if you become mayor and you have this very uh, nasty relationship with the current premier, how are you going to manage that or words to that effect? Um, and, and of course, that, that belies the experience that we've seen with John Tory, who ran against uh, a Doug Ford, who uh, ran uh, or, or was intending to run against his brother, or even Patrick Brown, who was ousted more or less by uh, Doug Ford, and yet as mayor of Brampton, they all have to work together in mayor of Toronto. And Andrea would do, would do the same thing, for sure, that regardless of political stripes, uh, you're going to have to uh, uh, do what's right for this municipality. Of course, uh, she still has to win the race. And there are two other candidates who will attract uh, their share of attention uh, and support during this election as well.
Um, one more question on, on, on the NDP aspect of this, and then we'll move on because I don't want to drag that down. Um, but, but certainly lots of NDP representation in Hamilton over the years. Many have said that has held it back in some ways. Uh, Hamilton very much at a turning point right now, very much a progressive city, uh, very much moving forward. Are you concerned we'll be paying attention to the wrong things, that the shift will change uh, from uh, uh, growing Hamilton to more social issues? which are always a part of campaigns. Yeah, and they're always a part of municipal governance as well. I mean, what we do in municipal government is provide services. Uh, you know, we're not a business. Uh, we don't make widgets. Uh, there isn't a profit at the end of your efforts. It's all about the provision of services. So that certainly is a left-of-center agenda. But the way you approach it, though, um, it doesn't have to be ideological. It can certainly be responsible, uh, small-c conservative in terms of safeguarding taxpayer dollars, um, in in terms of welcoming business uh, and making sure that the climate is good for business because they create the jobs and pay the taxes that allows us to then do social programs as well. So I I don't see that as an issue. Um, What's dragged Hamilton uh, down in terms of uh, keeping on electing members of the opposition and often members of the third party, the NDP, whether it's at the federal level or the provincial level, is that we don't get a seat at the governance table uh, yeah. with either the uh, with neither the federal or provincial governments. And that drags us back because we're not there when decisions are made. We're just yelling from the sidelines if we're part of the opposition. Now, there's a role for opposition as well, of course, but it's not like being part of the government. Well, in municipal government, you are the government, and so you got to you know you know you got to wash away your political stripes uh, and do the pragmatic things while holding true to some of the things that you believe are good for the community, and those are the services that we provide for our, our residents. I don't have any concerns about that. I mean, Bob Bertina just came off a stint as a a, a liberal MP, and I would say uh, that uh, if he became mayor again. He wouldn't be championing liberal causes. He'd have to do what's right for the community as well. Uh, Keenan Lunamis, of course, doesn't have uh, any political stripe, official political stripe, uh, but he too would be confronted by the same dilemmas uh, on in terms of how do you deal with uh, other levels of government and how do I do what's right for the community in advancing policies. You're talking about the other candidates. Uh, let's expand on that just a little bit. How tight do you think this will be? Do you think we have a nice representation here? Well, you know, it, it's a good field. I mean, they're all credible candidates. Um, Keenan is a bright young man. He has absolutely no experience, and that's his big problem, is that people want, you know, if, if I'm going to go to Greece uh, on, a, on a, a nice brand-new plane, um, as you did, uh, or the UK as I did, I want the uh, captain to have some experience flying. And when you're piloting as big a, an airplane, an aircraft as uh, the city of Hamilton with over half a million residents, uh, you got to know what you're doing. It's not the same as running a chamber or running any other organization. Politics is a totally different uh, kettle of fish. And so his inexperience in, in the role is going to be his detriment. Uh, the fact that he's brand new, and some people are attracted to that, is, is going to be an asset, perhaps. But I want the captain of the ship to have, uh, you know, um, experience at the tiller uh, as as you pilot this ship to overextend 
uh, a, 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 a statement. Um, so, you know, I, I think uh, uh, Andrea has experience. She's been on council. She knows everybody around the table. Uh, Bob has experience. He's been on council. Uh, he may not know, he may not have worked with everybody around the table, but I'm sure uh, he knows them. Uh, and so those experiences are going to stand them in good stead. The popular wisdom is that because Andrea is a center-left politician, um, uh, and Keenan has certainly taken that side, that they're going to split the vote. But you know what? Bob, in his administration, has been center-left as well. So all three of them are in the same basket as far as that's concerned. Uh, and, uh, you know, whoever has the best campaign and the best uh, uh, program, I think, is going to win this race. With Andrea having a, a leg up because um, Andrea is more current, everybody knows her by her first name, and I say more current in the political arena, uh, Bob is now once removed because he took himself out of contention. Uh, and, uh, and so he won't have that same, that same cachet that perhaps Andrea has, uh, but he's going to be competitive as well. Larry Deany with us, former mayor of the city of Hamilton, commenting on the race for the next mayor of Hamilton. Larry, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you, sir. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. It would give their families, loved ones, closure. Everybody needs closure in order to heal and move on. Uh, many residential school survivors commenting on what has been happening over the last couple of days, including a, uh, a, a giant mass in, in Edmonton, a full stadium, as uh, the Pope addresses uh, the Indigenous community and all Canadians on uh, the injustices in residential schools, saying uh, Christians supported the colonization of Indigenous people. And I know a lot of us are focusing on the leaders, but we have to remember it was the people of the day who voted for those leaders. So um, scapegoats to bring down statues and such, when at the end of the day, it was all Canadians who supported this sort of thinking. Let's bring in uh, Quinn Oler, anchor with uh, Global News in Edmonton. Quinn, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am doing well. Quinn, just tell me your thoughts on what it's been like for you to cover this and, and to watch all of this going down, because it's, it's, there's some pretty powerful moments here. There have been a number of extremely powerful moments and that things that you can see on the networks when you're watching TV and you can see some of these moments happen. Um, when you're reporting on the ground, you get a totally different idea of it. And we have spoken to so many residential school survivors who've been so open with their stories and we are so thankful for them willing to share their stories and share with the Pope as well about what they've been through. This is an incredibly emotional thing over the last two days. It's something that the chiefs actually have said, you know, we need more supports for the days, weeks, months, years ahead for residential school survivors after hearing this apology. Because as we've heard from so many, this is just the first step. And hearing that from the Pope, a lot of the residential school survivors we spoke to say, hearing that he acknowledges that this is the first step, is helping them as they start to move forward. This is just the first step of starting to move on and heal from this trauma. 
It seems that the Pope himself has been genuinely moved by all of this. And what I thought was quite a powerful image was him donning traditional uh, indigenous headdress. Talk about the significance of that. That is incredibly significant because usually in indigenous culture, the headdress is reserved for the leaders of the community. We heard from some chiefs yesterday talking about it, and they said that that's a representation of all of the work that he has done to start to mend this relationship with Indigenous people here in Canada. So that was an extremely big moment for both sides, for the Pope to accept that. But first of all, for Indigenous leaders to feel like he is honoured enough to wear that headdress. Do you feel, are you getting the feel, and I, you know, honestly, it, it'd be tough for someone who isn't in, the, in, isn't in the Indigenous community to comment, but do you feel this is a turning point? Because many are, are, have, have mixed reaction on this within the community. They want more than just an apology. Obviously, there's restitution that has to be made. What are your thoughts? There are two sides to this, and in many of the Indigenous people that we've spoken to, the elders, the knowledge keepers, they are saying, too, that, that they're really struggling with it as well in that they are feeling both sides of this. Again, this is the first step, but they really want to see meaningful change. They would like to see um, the doctorate be revoked so that they can see where children were buried, who attended which school. They want all of the information that the Catholic Church has to be made open, and that has not been made open yet. The other thing is, of course, they would like to see money paid out um, to survivors, to their families, to these communities, to start being able to deal with this. Uh, one of the things that the Chiefs really mentioned to me is that this is a very specialized group of counselors that they need. Um, this is such a specialized trauma that these families and these generational trauma that they've been going through. So they need the financial means to be able to bring in those specialized counselors to not only look at the mental health side of it, but to also go back to their culture and be able to recognize that there are so many culturally healing practices within Indigenous culture that they need to lean on. Um, so they're looking to the church to help with that. They're looking to the federal government. I know that uh, one of the Grand Chiefs in the area here on Treaty 6 said that he will be meeting over the next little while with the federal government as well as the papal congregation and being able to speak to them about, okay, this is the beginning, what's next for this? All right, only got a few seconds left, Quinn. Uh, obviously a full stadium today for the Mass. What's the feeling like in the city? What's the feeling like in the province today? Well, I think there's still this heaviness, and there's a lot of people um, who are not Indigenous who are saying, you know, this isn't about us. We want to hear the stories of Indigenous people. We want to hear what they need from us. So there's this heavy sense, but there's also um, some of the people that we spoke to were up in Laxingan, the last stop of the people visit. Some of the people we've spoken to, they're excited just to see him and to really feel what he has brought to Commonwealth Stadium today. And, of course, to that apology, that emotion and that feeling, they would like to be in his presence and feel how he is truly feeling. Quinn Oler with us, anchor with Global News in Edmonton, reporting on uh, the Pope's visit uh, to that uh, province and, of course, the, uh, the outpouring of support with uh, the uh, Mass today. Quinn, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Much appreciated. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yes, I'm a little rusty. I've been off for a while, and uh, I'm still on uh, uh, Italy time at this point. So 
Uh, we just got in late last night, so bear with me. Uh, if I'm falling all over myself or saying ah too many times, as I'm doing right now, uh, please forgive me. So uh, fortunate enough to uh, take a trip that we had planned uh, a couple of years ago uh, with, a, with a pile of friends uh, flying into uh, Athens and then uh, down to the Greek islands and then back up through the Puglia region of uh, Italy. Uh, very hot, 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 hot. You think we got it hot? Holy smokes. And then uh, out of Rome uh, for the last three days there. Uh, so an incredible time. We were very concerned about COVID, very concerned about uh, the BS that's going on in Canada in regard to the major airports, specifically Montreal and uh, Toronto. Uh, we flew out midweek, so I think that was a blessing and got away uh, quite, uh, quite quickly. Uh, so we were very thankful for that. However, uh, news of someone trying to get out the next day who was a relative of one of the people we were with and... Uh, <laughs> How would you like to be boarding a international flight, having to go through all of the rigmarole, because you're literally there for uh, hours and hours before your flight just to make sure that nothing happens. Uh, they finally got on the plane. They were sitting on the plane for 15 minutes, baggage on, everything ready to go, excited. And then they were ordered off the plane in order to put other people on who had been waiting for a day earlier. Uh, so they literally went back home. No idea where the baggage was. Finally, over 24 hours later, they arrive at their destination, and then the bags stroll in uh, afterwards. Uh, after traveling through Athens and uh, Rome, Rome, of course, a major hub, just like Hamil or just like Toronto and, and Montreal is, uh, Rome being a major hub for, uh, for Italy and Europe and such, um, no issues getting into... Uh, the Rome airport if you flew on any other airline except Air Canada. Uh, everything seemed to be flowing well except for this massive contingent of people which were literally lined out the door, out the door in the 40 degree heat at the Rome airport. Uh, Canada is a global joke right now and everybody all around the world who has to make connecting flights through Canada is complaining about it as I mentioned you're flying another airline in and out however if you're going through Canada it's a it's a it's a it's a show and you know the word that we put ahead of that so that being said eventually got on the plane and then flew into Toronto and again thinking my goodness we've somehow escaped this because we were flying midweek uh, however, when we landed, we had to sit on the tarmac for 20 minutes, and that's simply to avoid congesting the airport, which, of course, delays other flights behind us internationally. Uh, because, of course, nobody wants, uh, no politician wants those, those pictures of the bags lined up and all the people inside the airport, so they just keep them on the planes longer. So 20 minutes on the tarmac, can't complain about that, I guess, too much, but then eventually get into the airport and waited almost two hours for our bags to be offloaded to the point where, you know, when you show up and there's the, the luggage thing going around and, you know, each one's for a different flight. Well, in this case, several flights were coming off one conveyor belt, so to speak. And there were people that had come in from Shanghai standing there. And then all of a sudden we show up from Rome and they got a couple of bags off and then had to stand back while we got ours. Uh, almost two hours later. Uh, it was an incredible experience to think we had got that far and then we couldn't get our bags. Many were saying, I'm just going to go home and come back tomorrow to get them. And then the final uh, sort of nail in the coffin was when you finally get out to grab a cab, 
because uh, we have re- we have restrictions that the basic cab companies can't come into the airport. It has to be a special airport uh, cab, which of course are never there. So you're standing another 20 minutes in line while you wait for a cab. Whereas you step off the plane in Rome, and there's at least 20 or 30 cabs waiting. And as soon as one comes, the other one bolts in. Where you're standing there waiting for this special airport cab. <laughs> instead of the other guys that are just out there hacking through the day trying to make a living. And there's tons of them, but no, you got to wait for the special cab that can only service the airport. So uh, what a pile of crap. And Hamilton, or sorry, uh, Canada is a laughing stock around the world. And you can say, well, tough, tough bananas for those that, that are fortunate, uh, fortunate enough to travel. Uh, but this is affecting everything, whether it's goods, whether it's services, whether it's people who are trying to travel. And there's a lot of people doing that. And there's a, a you know, flights are full and, and tourism in uh, Europe, for example, has gone up three times what its normal uh, 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 capacity has been simply because people are eager to do so. Yet everyone is coping with this for the most part around the world, except Canada and its lack of management. And it's we got to change that. Something's got to change. We're too busy boasting about how great we are to really understand the problems we do have. And uh, it's a laughing stock around the world. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, across the pond, European Union governments have agreed today to ration natural gas this winter to protect themselves against any further supply cuts uh, by Russia as Moscow uh, pursues its invasion of Ukraine. Uh, They're trying to lower demand for gas by about 15%. To talk more about all of this, Atif Kabersi is with us, Professor Emeritus Economics, McMaster University, and former Undersecretary of the the United Nations and is with us now. Atif, thank you for your time. Hope you're doing well. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you. So how will this energy crisis, how, how hard would the, will this energy crisis be for uh, Europeans coming up this winter? How, how dire is it for them? Well, against the background of uh, very heavy dependence on ru- Russian gas, uh, up to the tune of 48% of Germany and most other European countries was coming from um, Russia through Nord Stream 1, and they were also uh, building uh, Nord Stream 2. So the story has always been a real uh, heavy dependence on Russian oil. And now they're facing the situation where some countries did not do what perhaps would have been uh, more prudent to reduce their dependence. And now they're facing a situation where uh, they're heavily dependent and this uh, gas is not uh, supplied on a regular, continuous and certain reliable basis. Uh, There is a a situation here where they're trying to share uh, in the event of any cut the burden of this. And they've agreed that uh, somehow they will all try to reduce the dependence to the tune of 15% between September and March of this coming year. And and they're all maybe crossing their fingers and hoping that this is not going to be a cold winter where they would need a lot more uh, gas. What could they have done earlier, earlier, Atif? You said obviously they waited a little long to to, uh, find other alternatives. What could they have done earlier? 
Well, I mean, like the rest of the world. I mean, we are still heavily dependent on fossil fuel. Everybody recognizes now that this heavy dependence on fossil fuel is not uh, consistent with uh, our ability to survive this planet through climate change and global warming and others. Uh, They could have used more uh, production of green energy, uh, solar, um, you know, uh, uh, wind, uh, uh, geothermal. Uh, there are alternatives, and uh, these are probably not as convenient and comfortable and dispatchable the way fossil fuel is, but this is the only way we're going to have a reliable source that would be produced locally or produced from reliable sources and one that is to measure it consistent with our ability to protect this uh, planet and live a sustainable life. Uh, unfortunately, I think we're playing, uh, spending too much time in the extremes as, as opposed to using a mixed bag and trying to find a real solution. What does this mean for citizens of the European Union? What will they be going through in the next few months? Well, they're, going, they're definitely going to be, uh, uh, you know, surviving some uh, very difficult choices and pains uh, already. Uh, the way uh, Italy is going through is to persuade everybody, even to mandate that every single household will have to lower their thermostat. They're not going to really uh, get uh, the regular comfortable thermostat so that uh, they can save on the consumption of, of gas. Uh, they're going to uh, persuade people uh, to uh, uh, cook uh, maybe with alternative sources or uh, try to uh, depend on uh, different ways of uh, coping uh, with transportation and uh, heat and cold and uh, the way they continuously uh, used in the past to be able to uh, go away, get away with uh, being so dependent on natural gas. Can Canada help? Yeah, I mean, we we have limited capacity. I mean, definitely we can. Uh, The trouble is that uh, most of the countries in Europe depend on gas delivered by these uh, pipelines. Uh, Much of the gas that we have is liquefied natural gas. And most of the countries that export now alternatives to Russia, they also produce liquefied natural gas. Europeans are not really any uh, position to uh, get this natural gas liquefied uh, in the volume and in the uh, capacities uh, that would be required. Atif Kabersi with us, Professor Emeritus, Economics McMaster, and former Undersecretary of the United Nation. Atif, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. I believe it's a crime scene. Um, I had an elder in northeastern Alberta uh, remind us some of these schools had incinerators. She said you can smell smell this, this funny odor of uh, something burning, and you knew it wasn't good. 
That is Chief of Frog Lake First Nation in eastern Alberta, Greg Desarle, uh, speaking about his thoughts and how he is feeling uh, in regards, uh, and, and obviously others in the community, uh, in regard to the Pope's pilgrimage uh, to uh, for recon- uh, reconciliation in Canada and in what has been happening in the last couple of days. To talk more about all of this, let's bring in Liam Midzane Gobin, settler scholar and assistant professor of, the, of political science, Brock University, and is with us now. Liam, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Hi, Scott. I am. Thanks. Uh, I hope you're well, too. Yes, thanks so much. Your thoughts on what you've seen happen in the last couple of days? Uh, I think, well, it's pretty incredible frankly um having Mm. pope francis come and offer um the apology which uh, i think there's a lot more to discuss the kind of follow-on and implications of that but i know from what i've been seeing it has meant a lot and it's brought quite a bit of closure to a great number of people Um, and i think that's important that you know there are still many wounds that are open and there's still a lot of work to do um, and it certainly isn't enough but I would say it's historic, and it really has been incredible to watch. It's hard to believe anybody can, whether you're in the community or not, be moved by what we have seen. Even the reaction on the Pope's face, uh, you can tell uh, this is resonating. But specifically when he donned a traditional uh, Indigenous headdress, talk about the significance and, and the smile he had on his face when this happened. Yeah, so as best I understand, and, and I'll admit that um, Plains Cree are not uh, the the people that I'm most familiar with, and so if I get this wrong, I do apologize, but I think the headdress is a great honor, and that's certainly something that we saw uh, the Pope recognize and, and embrace. Um, and so in that regard, I think it's really important, and it shows um, the openness and uh, how important this visit is for the decree who welcomed him and uh, on whose territory he he has been. It's also at the same time a great responsibility. And it means that what they have, have done is not only honor him, but also with that honor, given him a responsibility to follow through on his words with action. And so I think it, it plays a dual role in that respect. And the second aspect of that role, the responsibility that he has on him, Uh, and the church has on it especially, uh, is something that we really can't forget. But uh, it certainly is a great honor, uh, and with that comes great responsibility. Obviously, mixed emotions here, um, and we have to emphasize this is a first step. What is needed next, Liam? I mean, many have talked about restitution. You just can't apologize. But what happens next in your mind? So... What happens next, I'm not sure. Uh, I think that's up to to the Pope himself. But I think that there really are four key things that that he has to do, some of which are easier than others. Uh, The first, uh, I think, is that he needs to offer an apology on behalf of the Catholic Church as an institution. Um, His apology was really meaningful and really important. Um, But what he did was apologize for the members of the Church. Um, And even Justice Murray Sinclair, one of the commissioners of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada, said, I think it was today or or yesterday, that that doesn't live up to the call to action 58. Um, And that's for the Catholic Church to recognize its institutional role, not just the role of, of its members. So I think that is the first thing. And I think that 
hopefully will happen before he leaves Canada because that is that's crucial. The second we've seen, um, we yeah, sorry, go on. No, no, go ahead, please go on. Oh, absolutely. So you had mentioned it. There's uh, approximately sixty million dollars in compensation that the church hasn't yet to pay. So paying that is really important. Um, and then there are other things they can do, like releasing all of the documents in their care. Uh, the Pope said that there will be an investigation, and that is all well and good, but those documents need to be able to be made public for that real healing to, to continue on. Uh, and so I think those are kind of the, 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 the most straightforward things that the church needs to do next. You talked about uh, uh, drawing attention to members who acted in this way. We've seen over the uh, last years, leaders, uh, former leaders, uh, statues being toppled and such. Are we accepting that this responsibility lies on everyone's shoulders uh, and, and everyone of the day, and now it's our job to change things moving forward as opposed to blaming others other than ourselves? I think that's hard to say because obviously many within the church today are not the ones who committed those actions. But mm -hmm. I think what Pope Francis has on his shoulders, both the, the honor of the office that he holds, but the responsibility that comes along with that is to act on behalf of the institution. And so um, I think it's, it's maybe a little bit different than in some of the other contexts where like the Catholic church has quite a bit of power to be able to follow through on the actions that they have promised to do and have said are important. And so in that regard, I think it is an institutional responsibility on the church. And insofar as it's personal, um, that is something that Pope Francis has to undertake and really has to push forward. Um, that kind of healing work can still be done every day by members of the church, by non-members of the church. It's gonna take every single one of us uh, to really do that work and to be able to build a different kind of society moving forward. But that can't overlook the institutional work that the Catholic Church has to do. Is this a turning point? How big a how significant is this as a turning point for both the Indigenous community and Canadians who are finally learning their real history? I think what actions the Pope Francis and the Catholic Church decides to take next will show whether or not it is a turning point. Um, I think it's it's important. It's incredibly significant. And what we've heard is that many Indigenous people, be they First Nation or Inuit, Métis, have talked about how important this has been and how significant this has been. Um, and so I think there's a real opportunity for it to be a turning point. And personally, I hope that it is. Um, but there's some action that needs to take place uh, going forward if it is going to be one. What about perception of Canadians who are not in the Indigenous community? Does it change? How does it change? Will it change their views on perhaps old stereotypes? I'm not sure. Um, it's hard for me to look out now and say that this apology will change something when we've had so much information over the years. Um, and so on that regard, I personally am a bit more skeptical. Um, we know a lot of the horrors. And if what you've learned so far hasn't changed your mind, then the apology, you know, I'm not sure anything will at this point. Um, but I think it is really important because what it's doing is bringing a lot of media attention. And that in and of itself brings a lot of awareness to what we've already learned and, and brings that up again. And so I think that's that's an important step. 
In the end, it's our Canadian history. Many thought, well, and many haven't been taught. It's our Canadian history. How can we ignore it? I don't think we can. Uh, and quite frankly, what we're seeing is that we are being held to account for it. Um, mm. I say this as a settler myself who grew up in a community where there was a residential school and, and quite a big one. Like that wasn't taught to me when I was a kid. And it's something that I've had to learn since then. And it's something that a lot of us are are learning for the first time now and have been learning over the course of the past decade. And so it isn't something that we can ignore and it is something we're going to have to reckon with and something that we're going to have to hold our our government officials, our elected representatives to account for and in, in how they behave going forward and, and what kinds of changes they're going to put in place. Liam Midzade Gobin with us, settler scholar and assistant professor of political science at Brock University, commenting on what has been happening with the papal visit to Canada over the last couple of days. Liam, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks, Scott. You too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Former Ontario NDP leader Andrea Horvath is on the ballot when Hamiltonians go to the polls in the fall to vote for their new mayor. To talk more about all of this, Peter Graff is with us, professor of political science, McMaster University, and is with us now. Peter, thank you for your time. I hope you're well. I am, thanks. Hope you are too. Uh, thank you so much. Your thoughts on uh, Andrea entering the race? How does this even out the field? Does it? Uh, do we have a healthy set of candidates at this point? Uh, I mean, I think we probably have uh, a set of candidates that probably cover most of the different political opinions in the city. Uh, you know, maybe we're lacking a very conservative candidate of some sort, but uh, otherwise, I think there's a variety of different uh, different options on display, and in some ways. Andrea Horvath uh, complicates his campaign because uh, she kind of uh, intrudes on on two big issues that are out there in ways that uh, create different kind of patterns of alliance. So on the question of LRT, I think she's much closer to Keenan Loomis in the pro-LRT camp against you know the anti-LRT uh, Bob Bertina. But on urban boundary expansion, she's with uh, and you know suburban sprawl. She's really <laughs> Bob Bertina camp. Uh, you know, in the anti-sprawl camp against uh, Keenan Loomis, who seems, you know, more keen to, to explore urban boundary expansion. So in that way, it, it's a complicating uh, event. It's not clear whose votes uh, Andrea Horvath is going to be pulling away because, again, she, she cuts across the sort of two big issues that have been at the, the forefront of this campaign to date. Uh, obviously, former leader of the NDP and, and didn't gain uh, any more seats during the last election. How does this affect her mayoral race and 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 being aligned with a party does that sway it one way or the other or uh, do you just have to look out for hamilton's interests no matter what the party is yeah i mean i think uh you know her history with the ndp has um you know upsides and downsides for her candidacy i mean to the extent that she's colored that way it's a cue to voters i mean voters often don't know much about the candidates and what they stand for and so by having a brand on her in that way, it, it will help her uh, mobilize NDP voters, but probably will also make it harder for her to reach some liberal or conservative voters who might otherwise consider her. You know, in a bit of the same way, Bob Bertina's liberal brand, and I suspect is going to be, uh, you know, a bit of an issue for him as well. So, you know, I think that's a challenge. The fact of having lost in the uh, last municipal election probably you know, does have some impact coming out of the gate. There'll be some people who are, you know, uncertain about why they should be uh, supporting her or whether this is a kind of consolation prize for her. 
I think in other uh, contexts, at least voters in Hamilton Centre might ask if they've just, you know, given her uh, the support of their votes in the municipal uh, in the provincial campaign six weeks ago. You know, how come she's turning that back and now running municipally? So, you know, there may be uh, some questions there that her campaign will have to answer, uh, you know, at the risk of alienating uh, a bunch of voters who she probably sees as a core piece of her uh, path to victory. Hamilton obviously has uh, was in a downturn for uh, quite a few years. Many talked about turning the corner, the renaissance and such, and, and Hamilton very much in a different place now than it was even five years ago. Does this experience help or hinder, especially when we talk about councils and the changing of the guard and new faces needed, is this considered a new face or a, a new old face? Yeah, I mean, maybe uh, it joins the ranks of the new old faces. I mean, we, we have, you know, in council races, people like Ted McMeekin and Scott Duval uh, pointing back, and maybe it's a bit more uh, in those kinds of places. I mean, we saw in the announcement today, uh, and particularly, I guess, as uh, Councillor Marula as an endorser, you know, making the case that Andrea was an early actor in spurring some of the programs that helped, uh, you know, do the redevelopment. And so... I guess you'll try to, to dine out on that. But of course, the other uh, point of it is that many people may ask, does Andrea Horvath really understand Hamilton in 2022, or is she still living in the, the Hamilton of 2003? So to what extent has she really been able to follow and, and understand the political culture in the city, uh, you know, as she's been away being a party leader for the past 13 years? So I think the next few weeks will be pretty crucial in, in, in kind of revealing to Hamiltonians the extent to which Andrea Horvath is is living in the modern city or is in some ways, you know, still uh, dreaming of a Hamilton, uh, you know, of 2003. What does she need to do to win? Is she the front runner? Is she a shoe-in? Uh, I don't think there is a shoe-in in this race. I mean, she's running against a former mayor of the city who also had success on the federal scene. So, uh, I mean, I think, uh, I think Andrea Horvath has to do a couple of things. I mean, the first is uh, she has to overcome her uh, image both as being someone who's representing the downtown and who's representing the NDP. If she's to win uh, votes in places like Stony Creek, uh, Flamborough, uh, Ancaster, Dundas, uh, she has to be more than uh, NDP Andrea Horvath or downtown Andrea Horvath. So finding a message that resonates in those places will be crucial, particularly if she wants to peel away some votes uh, from someone like Bob Bertina. Uh, so that's, you know, the one piece of it. I think the second piece is she has to convince Hamiltonians that there's a reason for her running, uh, you know, that there's actually uh, a plan, uh, a set of uh, substantive ideas about how Hamilton needs to move forward that she can articulate. And certainly her, uh, you know, launch today was much more about announcing that she was in the race and providing, you know, a very clear vision of how she would make Hamilton different or better. Peter Graff with us, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. As always, Peter, thank you for the time. Be well. And you too. Former Conservative Prime Minister Stephen Harper has endorsed Pierre Polyev to be the next party leader. Can we play that clip, Will, of uh, the report of Harper endorsing Pierre? Stephen Harper has thrown his support behind Pierre Poiliev, a candidate he says has a pretty strong track record. He's been talking about the issues, especially the economic issues, that matter. Slow growth, debt, inflation. 
lack of job and housing opportunities, and the need to fix the institutions that are failing Canadian families. And in a nearly two-minute video posted to Twitter last night, Harper says Poilievre has presented solutions which are rooted in sound conservative ideas. He goes on to say that Poilievre spent the last few years in opposition being the party's most vocal and effective critic of the Trudeau Liberal government. As for the naysayers... I know, of course, that others, including some of my friends, may disagree with me, and I respect their views. For his part, Poilievre retweeted Harper's endorsement video, saying the former PM led Canada through turbulent economic times, balanced the budget, and made life more affordable. Tina Trajani, Global News. All right, uh, to talk more about all of this and moving forward, how does this change the campaign? Tim Powers with us, Chairman, Summa Strategies, Managing Director of Abacus Data, and is with us now. Tim, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing all right, Scott. When are you going to declare for mayor? I think you and Andrea in a runoff would be entertaining as hell. What do you think? Oh, well, it may be entertaining, and it also may be hell, so I'm not sure that's a really... I'm not sure that's what the city needs right now, Tim. Okay, well, you know, I'm always thinking of Hamilton. I'm always thinking of Hamilton. Plus, I don't think I have the, the patience for politics. Would you... I agree with not as I age, as I'm sure you're expecting uh, this as well or experiencing this as well. Yeah, patience is not the strong suit as it once was. I hear you and agree 100 percent. All right. Your thoughts on this ador- endorsement? Obviously, two very different cats. Uh, Harper Moore, the statesman, uh, conservative hair, shaking his uh, son's hand. Uh, also, the, the light blue sweaters and such. Pierre Polyevra, of course, a little bit more uh, of a divisive person, uh, perhaps more polarizing, although is certainly hitting the mark with a lot of Canadians. What are your thoughts on this endorsement? Well, this has been an unconventional leadership race anyway. It is highly irregular. In fact, I can't think of a time, be it in the Liberal Party or the Conservative Party in its various iterations in the last 30 years anyway, when there have been numerous leadership races, where a former prime minister during the leadership race has endorsed the candidate. So that in and of itself is newsworthy. Probably not surprising that it's Pierre, given uh, of, of all the candidates running, that's the one he worked with. For me, there's something else here, too, Scott, and I think this is a bit about uh, former Prime Minister sending a message, not just that he's supporting Pierre, that um, that he he wants to make sure the party is united when this leadership race is done, because one of his whole purposes when he formed the Conservative Party with Peter McKay was to make sure even in opposition that the Conservative Party stayed united. And I think he senses there's some challenges with that. And I guess he figures if he weighs in now, and there are people who may be you know, not fully sold on Pierre Polyevra, people who joined Patrick Brown, who may like uh, him uh, being Harper, but not Polyevra, that if he weighs in now, there's some uh, there, there's some benefit in that as it relates to party unity, because that is always job one for a conservative leader, and Harper knows that better than anybody else. Uh, Sheree, obviously, in some cases, viewed as the more centrist. Will Harper's endorsement um, uh, appeal to that audience, to that voter, and, and will it bring Pierre Polyevra to closer to the mainstream? Well, I mean, look, call it what it is, right? Uh, Jean Charest, Scott Akinson, uh, Roman Baber, and Alison Lewis are picking up the chiclets off the sidewalk today. I mean, it's a kick in the teeth to them. Uh, and Harper's clearly calculated that he's prepared to do that. Uh, you know, it's not going to sway the vote of every conservative. It probably won't have a lot of influence on the people who Jean Charest has already brought in, but it, it may uh, get to some of those um, 
brown voters, and it may get to others who maybe were a little squeamish when they saw some of what Polyev was talking about with the convoy, you know, cuddling the convoyers and promoting cryptocurrency. Uh, Harper arguably is still the most influential person in federal conservative politics. So it's a, it's a, it's a win for, for uh, Polyev. I, I would say this, too. I mean, I think what you've seen from the Polyev campaign is a desire not to make the mistake that previous frontrunners have made, and that is to ease up towards the end. So getting an endorsement from Harper helps them. Probably helps the liberals, too, Scott. Can you see that video being turned into a liberal campaign ad now? You, just when you thought that the ghost of Christmas past had finally receded into the ether, he's being brought back yet again. Uh, that's my next question. How will Canadians view this? How do they view Stephen Harper now? We remember everybody thought he was boring and this or too controlling way back when. But in, in, since then, we've obviously had uh, the, the government that we, that we have. How do they view this man now? Well, you know, I guess it depends where you are and how you're looking at him. Um, but he's still a very divisive figure. Uh, that's why the Liberals constantly, even when he wasn't running in 2019 and 2021, would go back and refer to him. He's still uh, among some swing voters, conservatives hope to get. Some that went to him in 2011, well, he wasn't as popular with in 2015. And, you know, some of the stuff that Trey's been criticized, or uh, Patrick Brown actually was criticizing Pierre about, came from the Harper campaign. You know, the the uh, tip line, the barbaric hit tip line, and the, some of the other me- measures around uh, Sharia law and, uh, and, and treating uh, people from uh, different uh, ethnic or cultural communities differently were all non-starters for a lot of the Canadian public, and that went back to the 2015 campaign. So expect to expect to, to hear about uh, all of that. But I can tell you this, Scott: um, Stephen Harper had has always had the view that once you're out of politics, you stay on the sidelines. If this had happened to him when he was the running for the Conservative leadership in 2004, and say then one of the his opponents, either Belinda Stronach or Tony Clement, had got the endorsement of Brian Mulroney or uh, Preston Manning, he would have been apoplectic. So something has clearly changed. And again, I think my guess is he's, he, he wants to make sure that conservative unity stays at the forefront and that his presence maybe affords some squeamish people the ability to say, okay, we can live with Pierre Polyev on the conservative side. Of recent time, liberals have been using fear to create uh, 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 a, a view of the conservative party. Does that still work today in a post-pandemic world? Are people looking for more than that? Well, I mean, the liberals have a record now. Justin Trudeau has a record, and he has a, an economy that's, um, you know, where inflation is running rampant, and people are very concerned about their future. I mean, yes, fear still works, and it may solidify some of their voters, but he's got more to answer for if he's going to run to be prime minister whenever the next election comes. And you know, where Polyev has been good, he's he, Polyev, whether you like his messages or not, is a good communicator, and he seems to get to a place with Canadians who are feeling frustrated that he shows an empathy towards them. And I think that's the point Harper was was trying to make in his video um, that uh, that that he is that effective communicator has been an effective critic of Trudeau and this arguably will be if it is Justin Trudeau current prime minister running again the toughest campaign he's likely to face because his record is longer and it isn't all glorious it's got lots of uh, uh, of hiccups in it and lots of scandal uh, that we talk about often that he'll have to address 
And unfortunately, we're out of time. I could talk to, uh, to you about this for an hour, but we will chat again. Tim Powers, Chairman, Summa Strategies and Managing Director of Abacus Data. Tim, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Take care, my friend. Bye. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. As we all know, Pope Francis delivered on Monday an apology uh, from the Roman Catholic churches and for their role in residential schools, saying many Christians supported the colonization of indigenous people. Many thought that was blaming uh, members as opposed to uh, the actual uh, organization and institution itself today in Edmonton, a uh, giant mass and uh, a full house uh, to watch this and a phenomenal, phenomenal uh, experience for not only those that were there, but those that uh, watched as this all happened. Let's bring in Dr. Patty Doyle Bedwell, Native Studies Instructor, Dalhousie University, lawyer and public speaker on Indigenous issues and with us now. Patty, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well, thank you. I hope a lot to say di- yes, thanks so much. A lot to digest in the last couple of days. What are your thoughts? What stands out for you? Well, the, my thoughts are um, I know I'm kind of in a confusing state because my mother was a residential school survivor, but she was also a very staunch Catholic. So the fact that the Pope had offered this has has offered this apology for what happened in the residential schools, I'm sure my mom would have been extremely happy if she was still here. But at the same time, I felt that the apology was kind of lacking on action. And he still didn't rescind the doctrine of discovery. And I know that has upset a lot of people. So I was kind of in between, betwixt between here about what he said, happy that he apologized, but hoping for more. Explain to those who may not know the doctrine of discovery, the main issues, what, what that's well, about the doc- to the indigenous the doc- community. Oh, sure. It's a, uh, the doctrine of discovery was issued by the Catholic Church in the 1400s after uh, Columbus had come to North America. I mean, sorry, um, yeah, come to the New World, as he called it. And one of the uh, things that they decided is that the peoples that they found here, us, the indigenous peoples, were uncivilized, savage, and not capable of holding on to property. So the church decided that the whatever explorer, whatever colonizing power arrived first, they would have access and ownership of the territory in which they arrived in. So um, that was the basis for the stealing of the land of indigenous peoples right across North and South America. At one point, the Pope at the time had actually divided uh, South America. They drew a line um, that ended up being, well, they didn't know the whole territory. So they ended up getting this territory, uh, Brazil, I think it was Brazil, um, between Portugal and Spain. And Spain ended up getting the most because they just didn't know about the how much territory there was actually there. So, But the doctor to discovery um, has justified the taking of indigenous land since the first explorers arrived here. And the church implemented that doctrine of discovery, and many people were hoping. And under the TRC, under the calls to action uh, number 45, I, I believe, um, it was suggested under the calls to action that the church rescind the doctrine of discovery um, to recognize our land, our land ownership, and the fact that we were here. And uh, it hasn't happened. And that was quite disturbing to me yesterday when I listened to the Pope's apology. What would that look like if that was to happen? How would that change things? 
Well, it, it would look at, I think what, the way it would change, it would recognize um, instead of the courts and government, depending on the idea that Aboriginal title uh, isn't real title, um, that um, we weren't sovereign nations. And I think it would go very far in recognizing our sovereignty as Indigenous nations and would go very far in recognizing that we did have original title to North America and South America. And it would offer, I think, an opportunity for the government to actually compensate us for the lands that they stole. And that would be, I think, one, I, those are two things I think that would happen. Um, I've been thinking about that a lot, about what would happen if they, if they actually rescinded that doctrine. And uh, it's a recognition that their initial ideas about us being uncivilized, savage, pagan, not Christian, not capable of owning land was wrong. Many have said this is a first step. Many have said yes. it's not enough. What needs to happen next? Um, uh, is it, uh, Obviously, you're talking about the doctrine of discovery. What about restitution? Yeah. Well, uh, interestingly enough, I've been thinking about restitution. I think that the church, and I'm talking about the Vatican, um, one of the things that they have to do, I think, um, not so much depending on money, but looking at bringing justice to the victims of the sexual abuse, the physical abuse, um, to bring justice to the families who lost children at the residential schools and the unmarked graves, to um, provide uh, t to the TRC and also in the United States um, the documents that the Vatican is holding on to. Um, they need to bring back the artifacts that they took that are stored somewhere in a Vatican museum and um, I think one of the most important things um, in my mind is, well, restitution, of course, but they need to bring people to justice who performed these heinous acts on our children. Um, and I didn't hear that yesterday. Uh, one of the things that the Pope said yesterday that kind of disturbed me was, he said, you know, there were good people that worked in the residential schools. Well, they weren't all good people. And the priests and the nuns, who abused our kids, um, the dead kids. We know that there are at least 5,000 from the TRC report of dead children that went to residential school. And I think that the Vatican has to acknowledge that and offer justice. They have to say, we're gonna investigate this. We're going to bring these people to justice. And it is definitely the Vatican's responsibility um, because they were the ones that implemented they helped implement these schools and uh, they were done by design. It was a genocidal effort on part, on part of the church and also in the government to get rid of indigenous peoples. And not only do they have to recognize that, which I think he kind of did yesterday, but they have to offer some justice for our kids. And whether that means going to court, whether that means providing compensation, you know, when they were, um, suing um, when residential school survivors in Canada were suing um, the government and the churches for what happened to them in the residential schools, the Canadian, uh, Canadian Catholic Church divided all of their churches into individual corporate entities. Yeah. So it was very difficult to sue like 
the Catholic Church because you couldn't get to the Vatican to sue them. And I think there has to be some process in place where I don't think it's survivors and their families and people who have passed away, their estate, their family members have to go through a whole other process where they have to tell their stories over and over and over again. I think that they should recognize that they did wrong and offer compensation and justice. Do you think this is it for the Pope's involvement, or does he have to stay engaged in this and follow through? Oh, he has to stay engaged. I don't think he can just come over here and say, oh, I'm sorry, and then go back to Rome and not think about this anymore. Um, This is going to be an ongoing issue, and I think the Church has significant responsibility um, to, like I said, to create justice, to bring, um, when we talk about reconciliation, the church has a significant responsibility to work on reconciliation and they can't just forget about this. They can't just say, Oh, we were in Canada. We went to the res. We said, we're sorry and forget about it. And uh, I'm really concerned um, about what will happen after he goes home um, because there needs to be action taken. Cindy Blackstock wrote a great article today on what actions need to be taken. And I agree with her 100%. The documents, um, recognition of the harm that was caused, the genocide, um, not just that was just, sometimes I get the idea that the Pope is thinking about, oh, well, there are just a few bad apples in this very nice system. The system itself was genocidal and they have to take responsibility for their role in that. And we need to have justice. So he can't just leave it alone and forget about it after he leaves. Dr. Patty Doyle Bedwell with us, Native Studies instructor, Dalhousie University, lawyer and public speaker on Indigenous issues. Patty, we'll have you back more on this. Thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you for having me. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Uh, One of the big stories, Andrew Horvath joining the race for mayor of Hamilton in the next municipal election. I should mention we did reach out CHML to uh, Andrea today to join the shows. Uh, Could not make it, however, is on with Rick tomorrow on Good Morning Hamilton and says she will come on with us uh, tomorrow afternoon. So we'll get to chat to her then. In the meantime, uh, you look to the others. Keenan Loomis joining us, Hamilton mayoral candidate and on the line now. Keenan, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thanks, Scott. Yeah, I'm doing great. It's been quite an invigorating day. Has it ever? Your thoughts on uh, Andrew Horvath joining the race? Well, obviously, when uh, I jumped into the race in January and uh, filed my papers in uh, May 2nd on the very first day, I knew that we would have competition. So, I certainly welcome her to the race, and, you know, she's uh, got some catching up to do. We're out there. We've been connecting with voters uh, ever since May 2nd and earning their vote, and uh, we're out there tonight. Uh, I'm at East Mount Park right now. We're about to do a canvas in the East Mountain, so it's been lots of fun. So, obviously, we don't know uh, the details of her campaign at uh, at this point. As you said, you've been out um, uh, talking to voters since uh, since January. Uh, what do you hear, and what direction do you hope to take the city in? Well, what we hear is an almost universal desire for change. There hasn't been one door that I've knocked on where people are saying, no, we're, we're good, we're happy with how things are going. Um, so... You know, we've been talking about uh, affordability, uh, for example, um, in releasing our housing plan last week to uh, build 50,000 new homes in Hamilton. 
And uh, that's received uh, a lot of positive positive reviews at the door. People understand they want their their kids to be able to afford to live here and to have a good job as well. And of course, I've been you know working in this community for the the last twelve years, and uh, people like that. People want uh, people who are uh, you know raising a family right now, understanding what uh, the average Hamiltonian is going through. People, somebody who understands the issues uh, right now of uh, what's going on in Hamilton. And uh, again, we will just continue to, to connect. And we've gained a lot of volunteers today. So I, I have to say that uh, there is uh, certainly that desire for change. And, and today only reinforce that. Um, over the last couple of decades, that call has has certainly been been echoed by by many people. A changing of the old guard, per se. Um, how has Hamilton changed in the last, say, five years? And, and and how does it how does it require a different approach? Yeah, Hamilton has changed tremendously. And you know, the the one thing the the lagging indicator has been you know change at City Hall. There's been very little of that, and I think you know we're seeing certainly with a whole lot of incumbents not running for re-election uh, this year, um, that we're finally going to get that change at City Hall. You know, the city has been evolving, and Hamilton City Hall needs to evolve with it. And we've been doing all the stuff that we've been doing um, despite our leadership at City Hall. And so it will be great to have people that understand, uh, again, what uh, Hamiltonians are going through right now in, in raising their children and, and, and trying to afford uh, the bills and, uh, be able to put food on the table. And, uh, you know, obviously again, that just, uh, we can't go backwards and that's exactly what, uh, our candidacy is all about. It's the future of Hamilton and, uh, and, and, you know, where, where we're going to be going over the next 25 years. Uh, others, uh, we'll have the other candidates on in the next uh, couple of days, just because, of course, uh, all of the attention directed at Andrea at this point. Um, uh, with the changing of the guard and what you're hearing uh, on the street and, and, and that sort of thing, how do you compete with someone like an Andrea Horbath who does have that name, who does have that uh, heritage and that pedigree? Yeah, well, you know, I think that uh, name recognition definitely cuts both ways, Scott. You know, it, certainly a lot of people are very familiar with my competitors, but that doesn't mean at all that uh, they are liked. And, you know, again, that is uh, certainly the sentiment that we are getting at the doors. And people love the plans that uh, we're putting forth. And we're going to actually, we actually have a platform. You know, it's the, it's the first mayoral candidacy in decades that has had a platform. And uh, people are really responding to that for sure. So moving forward, what's the biggest challenge for you now that she has entered the race? The biggest challenge for us um, I think we'll be, you know, breaking through that, uh, that bubble, um, and, and really getting people to understand that they don't have a, a, a binary choice here. And they don't, they certainly don't have to go with, um, with their partisan leanings. I mean, that's the best part of, of our candidacy. We have people from all three parties here, uh, on this campaign, and we don't have to have any of that baggage. And, you know, I think the, the thing for all of us to understand is, what is best for Hamilton uh, in dealing with higher levels of government, in dealing with the provincial government, and in dealing with the federal government? And I'm the only candidate that can ensure that uh, our calls from the, the mayor's office will get answered, both in Queens Park and in Ottawa. You know, we have been ignored as a city for far too long, and we are definitely putting a, shot, uh, a spotlight back on Hamilton.
Hamilton mayoral candidate Keenan Loomis joining us uh, on the announcement that Andrea Horbath has joined the race. Keenan, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thanks. Thanks, Scott. You as well. Uh, and, of course, remember, we will uh, try to get uh, Andrea Horbath on for tomorrow and certainly the other candidates uh, just to even things out in our coverage over the course of the week and get their opinion on where we are now in this race. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. All right, and that's it for us. Man, we made it. Can't believe it. A shot of espresso, and uh, you're there. Uh, thanks so much for listening. Much appreciated. As always, we leave it to you, the tax-paying customer, to have the last word. Danny writes in to say, As a Catholic follower, I'm somewhat confused when the Pope apologizes for all Catholics. I feel the apology seems like a wash, and it doesn't address the real people that should be responsible and take the responsibility. It's the same as when Justin apologizes for all Canadians, which we have had nothing to do with those issues. Yes, the institutions were wrong in how they treated our forefathers' children, so the people of these institutions should stand trial and be judged accordingly, regardless of religion, age, and gender. Put responsibilities back into the forefront. We see how often people run from the fire. There you have it. Nighty-night.